Could AI create better soldiers? Brain science has many answers to some of the business problems that we have today. But what about in combat, for example? Could you reprogram a soldier's brain to make them more effective in combat? I was reading one of Jocko Willink's books, Extreme Leadership, Extreme Ownership, and what it was about was how the U.S. Navy SEALs were organized a very decentralized way compared to traditional fighting units. And U.S. Navy SEALs, the teams as they're called, are one of the elite fighting units, special forces units. And much of their success is down to the fact that they make decisions on the ground. So you have small uh, squadrons, you have small groups who act almost independently of their chains of command. And if you think about it, combat's an extremely adaptable, agile environment. All, all the qualities we're talking about today in business, like resilience and agility, are needed in the combat zone. So I read today about U.S. Army research on the brain. And Dr. Javier Garcia, an army neuroscientist. I mean, how about that? Didn't even know those people existed. But you could imagine that they did. Someone somewhere is playing around with brains and gray matter to try and improve combat operations. He said, we are working towards fused human technology systems that work synergistically to not only impact perceptions, decisions, and actions of the soldier, but also to enhance the hybrid human's capabilities for rapid and adaptive decision-making. The key there is the hybrid human system's capabilities. What they're talking about is somehow reorganizing our brains to make them more agile, more adaptive, and make better decisions. Now, you can do that a number of ways. You can open up the brains and start playing around with the gray matter inside, or you can program, reprogram your brains using what the army calls neurostimulation, which is basically an electromagnet put on your head, which will reorganize your uh, your, your electrical circuits inside the brain. In, so, in the same way, if you put an electrical magnet on uh, some kind of electronic device, it will affect it. So what they've been doing, they've been experimenting with electrical magnets on soldiers' brains to see if they can yield a better response. And to put a bit of backstory onto this, let's talk about the importance of a key concept in the brain called plasticity. Now, there's a reason why, and I talk about this in the Human Communication Playbook, there's a reason why, for example, human babies versus giraffe babies have a very different effectiveness in the wild. A human baby is pretty useless. A human baby can't survive by itself for years. It, the gestation period inside the, the mother is nine months, but the gestation period outside the mother is like five to six years. Yet a baby giraffe when it's born, is up on its legs within hours and it can run around with and be self, self at least self-moving within days. It may, may still rely on the herd, but it doesn't have the kind of external gestation period that a human has. And there's a good reason for this, like why are babies, human babies, so dependent and why are animal babies so independent straight away. Well, look, for example, at DNA, DNA being really those four components, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine, those AG, ACGT, those are the four components of our DNA. And every single living being has those four components, whether they be a giraffe or a soldier or a baby, they all have those four base components. There are no components that one animal has that another has they just are organized in a different way so they have the same building matter but they're just reorganized differently and if you look for example at us and the chimp as an example chimpanzee 98.4 percent of the chimp's dna is in us so 
DNA-wise, are only 1.6% different. And it's the same as well. If you look at the natural world, for example, the animal's kingdom, the horse, for example, the horse and the zebra, physically, they look extremely alike. The, the zebra or the zebra, depending on what part of the world you come from, uh, looks like a stripy horse, right? And it's shaped like a horse and it behaves like a horse and it eats like a horse. However, the difference in DNA between the zebra and the horse is bigger than the difference between the human being and the chimpanzee. So the point being is that these difference between us and a chimp because it, you know they, they are absolutely minimal and you couldn't have chimps fight in war they wouldn't be useful soldiers so the physical body the the physical nature of the brain is not effective enough for us to adapt to many environments and this is the idea of plasticity and I'll I think it's key to understanding what plasticity does for us in society and for humanity and also how it's expressed importantly through culture and storytelling. It's the software of humanity and the hardware of humanity is the physical form in the brain. But there's a reason for this. And if you think about, for example, the human evolution and there's a great speech, if you ever get a chance to watch John F. Kennedy's speech about going to the moon, and he talks about human ev evolution. If you put it into a 50-year period from the beginning of known humanity to today, just take it as a 50-year period as an analogy. The first 40 years, we didn't even know anything about. We don't know what happened in the first 40 years. And then you put all these sort of developments together, like, 10 years ago, humans started, you know, manipulating hum uh, animal hides and basic tools just 10 years ago in our 50-year history. And then you look at, it gets faster and faster in our evolution until only very recently, like last week we discovered penicillin and yesterday we discovered telecommunications and electricity and mass transit. And, you know, the internet is really just in the last hour or so. But if you were to plot that curve, the first 40 years of that curve is just a straight line, really, where there's no evolution whatsoever or none of significance. And then, obviously, the, the discovery of tools, stone axes, etc. And then you sort of see that curve as an exponential curve. And it sort of rises fast, ever faster. And there's, a, there's an important f reason for that because we physically aren't adapting faster and faster. We are pretty much the same human species we were 50 years ago in that analogy. There's not a lot of difference. And that, that's why, for example, when you look at the modern diet, we haven't adapted. If we physically could as adapt as fast as society and technology and lifestyle we would have also physically adapted to a high carbohydrate uh, high glycemic index diet which we haven't and that's why we also have diabetes and all these degenerative diseases which have strong associations with the modern diet because we're not adapted to that food, we're still the same physical structure as we were 50 years ago in that analogy of human time. The human being that ate mostly nuts, berries, root vegetables, and maybe a little bit of meat. That hasn't changed. So physically, the same digestive system is inside us and the same organs. So how is it that that physical structure could also produce blockchain or AI or a rifle. The reason is, is neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to adapt and change its structure.
and this is key because the human baby and the, the giraffe baby are born with very different levels of neuroplasticity. The, the giraffe baby has very limited neuroplasticity. It's very much hardwired into its brain. And yet the human baby is born with a very high level of neuroplasticity. That's why it can't do anything when it's born. It can't even you know, change its nappy. It can't eat on its own. It falls off chairs you know it doesn't you wouldn't put it on a staircase it has no self survival functions whatsoever all it can do is cry when it needs something and even then you don't know what it needs like does it need to change its nappy does it wet itself does it need food is it tired we don't know so it's pretty useless but there's a good reason for that because that neuroplasticity allows it to learn new things so it allows it to learn new ideas, new environments. And that allows the human beings, not just as babies, but as a species to adapt to different scenarios. So everybody's talking about agile now, but this is by default agile, that we were born agile. And if you read the book, Guns, Germs and Steel by um, Jared Diamond, he talks about the evolution of humanity. And if you look at the evolution of humanity, it, it sort of occurred across an axis, which is horizontal. You know, why is it that the early civilizations with the Egyptians, the Assyro-Babylonians, the, the Romans and the Greeks, and then maybe the Ottomans and the Persians, and even the, the Aryan Indians and the Chinese out to the east, they all sit across an axis, which is, a, you know, a little bit of a few degrees above the equator. Geographically, it's an east-west evolution. And even if you look at the, the sort of early imperialism of humanity, it was always across an east-west axis. It was always, you know, Greeks and Romans and the, the Romans and the Egyptians and then the Persians. And it was all sort of moving east or west. And even if you look at the Silk Road, the Silk Road physically runs east or west. And there's a good reason for that. And that reason is, is, is climate. And the human beings that were born in one climatic zone didn't do very well if they moved into another. If they moved south, it got too hot. They picked up diseases that they weren't immune to and they died. If they moved north, they weren't used to different agricultural conditions. They weren't used to, you know, the more sort of open steppes that you find in sort of the barbarian landscapes or they weren't used to the cold. And so they perished. So if you look at humanity, it's always existed on this east-west axis. And Therefore, human progress has always been east-west. And, you know, trading for thousands of years was an east-west axis. It never sort of went up and down. The up and down parts of humanity were always poor. And the outliers, the outskirts of empire. So we as humanity have for many thousands of years been contained within this east-west axis because we didn't have enough adaptability to move north and south, but only when we started learning new technologies. For example, we started learning magnetic navigation. We got that from the Chinese. I'm talking about the Europeans, for example. The Chinese were using magnetic navigation to locate gravestones, but Europeans learned that magnetic navigation made great tools for ships, and that helped them then move across from east-west to north-south and also you know understanding concepts such as latitude and longitude and clocks and how important they were in that and gunpowder then enabled them to have weapons which increased their chances of survival moving north and south so what happened was is the advent of technology enabled human beings to now move beyond that east-west axis, to be more agile, to adapt to new environments. And that's why you see the expansion of humanity now adopt a, a two-dimensional axis, which is you had these sort of imperial powers now go south into South America and into Africa and into India and into Southeast Asia because they had technology to do that. And not only could they explore and 
find these places and conquer them, but they could also settle them and adapt to them. And that was really important because it meant that they could extend empire. And that's why you saw the rise of, for example, the British Empire, which last hundreds of years, because they had the technology, even though physically they weren't adapted to the places that they were colonizing. So this is neuroplasticity. It, it occurs through storytelling. And at some point in history, what happened was is human beings developed the ability to tell stories. And if you look at some of the cave paintings in Lascaux in the southwest of France, you'll see paintings of wild pigs and buffalo and men with spears. And it depicts a hunt and it depicts an animal stampede and hunting trails. And what that really is, is it's not just a a selfie of the, the cave tribe at the time. It's a story that contains information that could be transferred from one person to another. And importantly, think about the kind of information that that could contain. It could, for example, contain information about heroic action. So this guy was a hero because he killed the biggest wild pig of all. Something like that. It could have, for example, information about animal trails so you know the animals follow this trail from March to October and this is where you can find them it could have information about dangers for example here's another tribe and they live over here in these hills and you need to be aware of them that information affects the survival of the people who consume it so knowing that information gives them an edge to adapt to an environment which wouldn't be able to be transferred from physical human to physical human there is no way for example if you learn information about your environment such as these berries are poisonous or this is a good way of making a spear which gives you an edge evolutionarily there's no way that you could transfer that information through evolution because going back to the 50-year analogy physically we should have evolved to the modern diet such that the modern diet wasn't degenerative to us. However, in hundreds of thousands of, of years, we still haven't adapted. So it is also near impossible to transfer information in that format because it's just random. It's just random that, you know, you have a a generation of offspring that somehow are more adapted to that environment than you are. I mean, how could you, for example, have children that were more adapted to not eating that berry without knowing about it? There's no way. And the risk, the gamble of evolution over thousands of generations certainly wouldn't get you to that result. Or it could, but it would take hundreds of thousands of years and therefore, all the information that we've learned as human beings and adapted to the environments, whether it's being about the choice of tools or the dangers in society or how we trade with people or what should be moral codes that promote a better society as a tribe, have to be transferred through software as opposed to hardware. And that's why human beings developed storytelling, because... Storytelling was the great uncoupling, the uncoupling of evolution from our physical frame. Our physical frame evolves, but it evolves extremely slow. It evolves on time frames of millions of years. And yet we need evolution to happen not in millions of years and now not even years. We need evolution to happen in days. We need to have information in evolve think about the pandemic as an example that that has been with us just for six months now if we were to evolve to adapt to the pandemic it would take us hundreds of thousands of years what would happen is just pure chance that one group of people had this strategy and one group of people had that strategy this 
group of people, Group A, had a strategy of intermingling, and this Group B had a strategy of social distancing. By nature, it wasn't a response to the coronavirus. And over time, Group A got wiped out, and Group B survived and had many more children. That's evolution. But that would take chance and thousands of iterations. And also, it's not adaptable, because if Group B, by default, socially distanced, chances are that they didn't cooperate and they didn't procreate as much as Group A. So they weren't effective as a tribe anyway. So when the pandemic finished, they were ineffective. They were only built for one environment and they couldn't adapt. And then after the pandemic, we need Group A again, but they've all died out. And that's why physical evolution over a long time frame works but in a short time frame is useless and we have to move our cultural knowledge into the cloud and that is effectively what evolution has done it's given us this tool to tell stories to upload all our information into the cloud and that's the ultimate agility of human beings you know anthropologists talk about four major behavioral novelties that emerged in the early days of humanity. One was cooperative breeding, which would be, for example, that you know everybody wasn't breeding with everybody. There were limitations in that, and obviously you know the social issues, but as well as the genetic issues. Then they had the refined stone tools like the stone axes, which were key to building better hunting equipment. And then there was fire making, which was obvious, and then cooperative hunting of large animals. Now, the cooperative hunting of large animals, going back to those cave paintings, was key because it meant that we could do things which were beyond the day-to-day. -day. Now, if you think about it, hunting a large mammoth or a wild pig may take days. And it's one of the reasons why that, you know, genetically we are adapted more to for example, burning fat than carbohydrates because fat is readily available in large animals and it's more associated with being able to go on long, slow duration hunts because if you look at, for example, how traditional tribes would hunt animals, large animals, like larger than themselves, they would hunt for days and days and they would stop and then run for hours and then stop and then sleep and then run for hours and then eventually they'll catch up with the animal and then kill it and then eat the animal when they bring it back to the tribe but that animal would feed the tribe for weeks you know because now what they would do is they would skin the animal and they'd use the skins for their own warmth and you know comfort and carrying objects for example and they would also use the fat as a you know to store fuel and the meats could also be dried and cured or smoked and saved and the bones as well had marrow. So there were many, many uses for that animal, which lasted for weeks and weeks and weeks. But it was like an investment, i.e. that they could spend all their days chasing field mice or little furry things, but they would never, as a tribe, grow beyond hand to mouth. But if they learned to cooperatively hunt animals, and with that, they would need tools because you need spears, light spears and axes to hack the meat and so on to carry and package the animal when you take it back to the tribe. And fire making as well, you need to learn how to smoke an animal and you need to learn how to make fire when you're out on the trail. And all of these skills had a significant impact on the evolutionary success of that tribe because the tribe that only ever hunted field mice day-to-day -day would always be limited to the day-to-day -day. but the tribe that hunted large animals would have a massive yield gain over other tribes because it could have now support a much bigger tribe and it wouldn't starve you know when the crops failed or they wouldn't be sorry they wouldn't be involved in agriculture but if the the food sources ran out they had these preserved meats or they could live, you know, for a few weeks without eating. So they had a significant advantage and that
came from storytelling. If you think about those cave paintings, really that's what it was about. It's about teaching innovation. And we talk about innovation now in business context as something that happens in technology. But innovation has been happening for thousands of years. And this is how we taught it through storytelling. This is the story of innovation. It's basically teaching a tribe how to adapt and how to learn new skills to adapt to the new environment. And if you think about today, everybody's talking about adapting to the post-COVID world. What skills do we need? What do we need to learn in business? How do we reskill, upskill, retool? How do we reorganize our business? How do we reshape our business? These seem to be very modern challenges. And yet, these are challenges that the original cave dwellers faced hundreds of thousands of years ago. It's the same. It was exactly the same. Like we are facing a crisis. Maybe there's a food shortage. Maybe we are under attack from another tribe. Maybe there are wild animals. Maybe the weather has changed and the environment, etc., etc. We have to adapt to crisis, which now means we have to tell stories about how to adapt. And it's exactly the same today. And that transfer of critical knowledge and also moral codes has given us this ability to evolve that other animals didn't have. That's why we're not seeing other animals evolve because they can't tell stories. They are physically evolving like us at the same speed. You know, if you look at the dog today and the original wolves from which they came, the wolves that came to the campfires and ate scraps of human beings and then slowly over hundreds of thousands of years got domesticated. Physically, the wolf and the dog are different in the same way the, the mankind of that era and mankind of today physically are different. But the physical differences have, have happened at almost the same pace. And yet the storytelling, the cultural difference have happened at a significantly increased pace in human beings. And what that's done is it's also then created this, what they call what evolutionary biologists call this phenotypic plasticity. And phenotypic plasticity is where the behavior now drives evolution. In the basic form, it means that if storytelling helped us as a species evolve faster and survive and have a better chance of survival and passing on our genes, it also meant that we would have a better chance of survival if we were more receptive to storytelling. Because in our brains, there must be areas which are receptive to information, stories, and adaptable. And those areas are key to our evolution. If we would have less of them, we would have less chance of absorbing story, and more of them, more chance of absorbing story. And therefore, those human beings that had more of that gray matter stood a better chance of survival because they were more receptive. They were more likely to absorb information and act upon it. And that's why if you look at the human brain now, there are areas of the brain specifically related to empathy. And neurobiologists like V.S. Ramachandran and this Italian neurobiologist as well have discovered what they call mirror neurons Mirror neurons are the neurons inside our brain that fire when somebody is doing something like us. So that's why we feel good when we dance in a group of people. That's why we feel good or somehow we receive some positive feedback when we're marching in a line mil militarily. Or that's why we feel good when we're all standing doing the same thing, stretching for yoga or we feel good when we're all singing a song. Or we feel good when we see people doing what we're doing. It's because the brain's hardwired for that. 
So what's happened is, is we've evolved this brain structure, which rewards us for storytelling, rewards us for social behavior. And that's why empathy is so important today, because it helps us understand the needs of other people. And with those needs, we take in their information and then using the plasticity of the brain and story and information, we can adapt to it. So our brains have evolved as storytelling machines. And that gives us a real edge in competition and generational success. Now let's bring this back. I was talking about the babies, the human baby and the giraffe baby. There's a reason why the human baby is useless at birth is because it's evolved to absorb all that information because a human baby born into one environment and a human baby born into another environment are going to need to absorb different informations because we're not a giraffe baby only is ever born in the savannah and it only ever faces one type of threat and it only ever has to experience one type of weather and yet a human baby is facing multiple environments so they designed it with this software that allows it to adapt to many different environments and the the payoff of that software is it it's pretty useless at the beginning it has to learn its environment before it can master it and that learning takes many many years and importantly it never stops so our brains are plastic and extremely adaptable by design. Bring this back to now the military and think about that analogy of tribes and babies adapting to environments. Because if you were to take it to the extreme, what you have is an extreme environment where in the combat zone, you're dealing with extremely dynamic environments, unknown threats, where there may not be established rule books, playbooks. I mean, if you look at the most recent conflicts in the military, like, for example, the, the American invasion of Iraq, was a very different war than the invasion of Afghanistan. These are extremely different wars. They were fought in very different ways. And therefore, the rule book of the training of the army and the military and the special forces were very different. And it's one reason why now increasing amount of wars seem to be fought by special forces as opposed to ground troops who later go in and secure areas because the environments in which we are now engaged in combat are so different are so adaptable and one minute you're fighting in a jungle next minute you're fighting in a desert next minute you're fighting in a city in an urban warfare and and therefore the form of the form of combat is extremely different and your threats are extremely different you can't go in with that that giraffe mindset which is like i'm really adapted to day one so the, the giraffe model of the soldier, you know, that sort of World War One, maybe World War Two model of combat, which is we'll only ever face one form of combat and just be doing that for years and years. And I would dig into the trenches and now it's just a war of attrition. There wasn't a lot of change in that environment. Whereas if you're sending somebody into Afghanistan or into some of the the badlands of Iraq, they are going into villages, and there aren't, you know, obvious demarcations of enemy lines. There are no enemy heavy armored vehicles. You're dealing with snipers. You're dealing with enemies disguised, enemies embedded in the native population. You don't know when you secure a house and you're you're inside the house and you have in that house a mother and a baby and a, a husband and a brother 
you don't know that they one of those may be what you call an insurgent you don't know if they're supporting because you don't speak the language they can't communicate you with they're scared the baby's crying you're pointing a gun at them you don't have your translator how do you adapt to that environment there is no rule book they don't teach you arabic and even if they taught you arabic it's not the same arabic that these guys speak they don't teach you any of that they can't teach you any of that and what do you do you've got seconds there could be somebody in the kitchen you don't know they could have made a, an escape out of the window the brother could be the terrorist that you're looking for you have no idea so it's an extremely adaptable and agile environment if you think about now business is facing this challenge of agility of being resilient really what is it post-covid world we're all talking about resilience it goes back to the mike tyson maxim and i'm very much looking forward to mike tyson getting back in the ring soon that's going to be the fight of the century aged 52 or whatever it is it's just phenomenal so mike tyson said Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And that's very much the situation we find ourselves now in business. And also, when you think about the military, that planning, this is the giraffe model, has to some extent value, but in the ring, it's very different. And there's a great story, and I believe it's evolved over time it's an apocryphal tale meaning that the sources become dubious but the the moral of the tale outlives the authenticity of the sources there's a tale of two mixed or two martial arts scores and these are the days before mma and ufc and joe rogan and all that there were two martial arts schools one kung fu and one was Muay Thai kickboxing and Kung Fu is pretty much kickboxing anyway and they challenged each other to a competition because technically Kung Fu is a lot stronger when you've seen all the Shaolin monks doing their lying on spears or you know balancing on a spear with his neck type routines you've seen all that stuff right it looks technically very impressive I mean they've trained and trained and trained for that so technically they're very astute and you would worry about fighting one of those guys when he starts whipping out his nunchuck or his swords Muay Thai by comparison looks a little bit primitive you've got these guys who effectively are poor Thai kids who've come from the countryside to train and fight they don't look like fighters they're quite thin they wear these big baggy shorts these shiny baggy shorts and they don't look the part i mean they certainly don't look, don't look like heavyweight boxers like tyson and they certainly don't look like bruce lee so there's this challenge between this school kung fu school and muay thai school and they had a, a fight to see who was the best and uh they the muay thai people invited the kung fu school to their place and they had a fight and again it's apocryphal but the the moral of the story is what's important here that the kung fu team got their ass kicked by the muay thai team and which really weren't expected and obviously they accepted that they were on away territory so they then invited the Muay Thai people back to the Kung Fu school to, for a rematch and said, well, come back to our dojo or our territory and let's have this fight again, but on our terms, in our rules. And they came back to the Kung Fu school later on. They had a rematch and the Muay Thai team won again. They kicked their ass, even though technically the Kung Fu people had planned and planned and planned and they were much, much stronger. And the reason is, like the Mike Tyson maxim, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And if it's interesting, if you listen to Mike Tyson talk about boxing, is that it's not necessarily being able to 
dodge the blows or to land blows on your opponent. But most importantly, it's about being able to take the blows because when you take that punch to the face, to the jaw, your brain gets rocked. Your brain sees stars, literally like when you watch the cartoons and you see the little birdies and the stars like, like whistling around the head. That's going on, literally. You get white outs, you get flashes of lights. And if you haven't experienced that before, then it's sh everything shuts down. No matter how good you are, no matter how well planned you are, no matter how skilled you are, if you're not used to taking that blow to the face, then you won't be able to adapt and survive in that environment. And the reason why Muay Thai fighters can survive in that environment is not that they are technically stronger, but from an early, early age, they've been taking blows to the face and knees to the body. From like, they were, you know, knee high, literally as kids, they've been punched in the face. And that's why when we talk about resilience, when we talk about agile, that's really what it is. Agile isn't a strategy, isn't a plan. Agile is the ability to take blows and adapt and move on fast. Because if you approach agile as, if you approach business as a planning strategy, as a planning process to diligently think through all the different scenarios the reality is is that like they say in the military no plan ever su su survives the enemy you know once the shit hits the fan all the plans fall apart and it's the same in business so what do we do because if our plans don't survive when the rubber hits the road we now need to focus on how do we adapt the people and this goes back to the neuroplasticity how do we train agile and adaptability inside our people because now what's happening is is in these highly adaptable environments plans and strategy become less important than culture and conversations because what culture does is it contains the conversations and code about who we are and how we adapt. And that's transmitted from people to people. If, for example, as an organization, it's a culture like Zappos built on customer satisfaction and delivering happiness, then you can adapt regardless of the environment. However, if that's a strategy, then it's dependent on the environment in which you're in. So when I read about the U.S. Army studying brain plasticity effectively what they're doing is they're saying that human beings are adapted to these mid-level environments which are adaptable environments however not highly adaptable environments so what's happening is human beings operate within this range but the the need to have rapid adaptation to multiple unknown sources is in the modern world just non-existent until you put that person in a combat environment now go back a hundred years and that would have been okay because combat would have been a set rule book as we discussed however today you need skills which human beings don't have and so what they're looking at doing is what they call transcranial magnetic stimulation, stimulation or TMS, which basically using magnets can enhance, enhance the neuroplasticity of the brain, modify the neural activity, which I find really interesting. I don't know the long-term effects of this. I can see what they're trying to do. Effectively, then it's non-invasive. They're not opening up the brain and trying to rewire the brain, because that's never going to end happily. What they're trying to do is they're trying to build on the neuroplasticity of soldiers' brain. And what they're trying to explore is that if we make the brain more baby-like effectively, as opposed to human baby-like, as opposed to giraffe baby-like, then 
we can help the brain reorganize itself, which then it becomes highly adapted to fast-moving environments. Which is going to be extremely interesting, what kind of results come out of this. I don't think this is a one-off. Effectively, what this is, is you have an organization which is trying to solve an extremely dynamic environment. The, the challenges of that and our human brains aren't adapted to it. And AI certainly isn't up to speed at this stage. What I think longer term, what this means for us is this is probably the outlier case of the beginning of natural intelligence. Now we've got artificial intelligence, which is using computers to model intelligence and in many ways improve upon intelligent tasks. And from that, the more and more complex these tasks become, the more they will emanate or they, they will manifest signs of general intelligence. So, you know, this sort of broad self-awareness and consciousness, which is really just an epiphenomena of complexity. And yet what really will happen long-term is the convergence of AI and biology because at the end of the day what will happen is we'll realize that the more and more we evolve artificial intelligence the more and more it will become lifelike at the physical level the more and more it will have to become like a brain because the brain has already solved that problem of intelligence and what we're trying to do is we are trying to reinvent the wheel with computers. We're trying to say, well, how do we create this tool to make us move faster across dynamic environments? But mankind already invented the wheel, so why invent it again? In the same way nature has created the brain to solve that problem, why then try and do it again? and replicate it at much cost and time. Of course, there is a necessary process in learning to understand because we don't fully understand intelligence ourselves. That's the problem. We, you know, the, we're like those sort of middle ages peasants looking at the stars and wondering just how that, you know, planetarium is organized, like this dome un under which we exist, not understanding that such a thing as the universe exists. So we're in that sort of stage that we don't understand intelligence so therefore we have to kind of go through the journey of discovery with ai to break it down and understand it not because really we're trying to make more intelligent devices but we're trying to understand what intelligence is and how it works that's the real upshot of ai and what that will then do is converge in the future machine biology will merge and what we're seeing now here with the US Army is the outskirts of that, that they're realizing that there are better results in trying to make the human brain better than there are in building a robot to do that. What will happen is those two approaches, like two sides of the tunnel, tunneling through the earth and sort of constant recalibration to meet each other and point in the right direction will eventually meet and that will be artificial intelligence of the future which won't be machine and it won't be biology but it will be this hybrid of functions and i feel that that's really the future that we're working towards that we not necessarily using technology will create more intelligence but we will use our understanding of intelligence to create more intelligence through having built technology and modeled it like playing with the bricks we understand how the basics of physics work so we're in living in very interesting times it's the 2020s and if you look at the industrial revolutions there's been four major industrial revolutions and artificial intelligence is the fourth one and each industrial revolution follows a pattern. And really, there were five major technological revolutions, of which four were industrial. And if you look at the, the pattern there, 
what's going to emerge is the fifth industrial revolution, which is what I think we're talking about now. And let me put that into context is that if you think about the four industrial revolutions and how they sort of played out, well, you, you have the first industrial revolution, which was water and mechanization and steam. And then you had the, the railroad and then you had, you know, the railroad and electricity. And then you had IT in like 1985. And then in 2020, you had the fourth industrial revolution, which is AI. And what's interesting is if you look at all of these industrial revolutions is they happen at half the speed of the one before, right? And what I mean by that is that if you go way back to print, now print effectively being the first major technological breakthrough of the modern era, that happened in 1440 when Gutenberg invented the printing press. That lasted exactly 310 years until the first industrial revolution of 1750, which was the factory. 155 years later, which was half 310 years, we had the second industrial revolution, which was electricity. 1905, light bulbs, electrical powered automation. And in exactly half the time again, 77 years from 1905 to 1982, the electrical revolution gave way to the IT revolution. In 1982, software powered. And 1982 revolution lasted exactly half the time of the last one, which was 38 years. So from 1982, add 38 years to 2020. So each industrial revolution has happened at half, exactly half the time of the one before. IR4, now 19 years. IR3, 38 years. IR2, 77 years. IR1, 155 years. And print, 310 years. Now, if there, is, if there ever was a sign out there, that's it. So now... The question is, is 2020, the fourth industrial revolution will last 19 years. So that means in 2039, the fifth industrial revolution will begin. And we're already seeing the beginning of it now. And the fifth industrial revolution will be artificial life. The combination of AI and biology and evolution all coming together. And we're seeing it beginning with these kind of experiments that you're witnessing at the fringes of the US Army Research Laboratory. But history shows that that's always where it starts. You look at the birth of the internet, the internet was at first a military network. It was built on nodes, not because that was a great way of creating scale across the world, but it was creating resilience in case of a nuclear attack. That's how the internet was born. So, Industrial Revolution 5, artificial life. You heard it here first. <laughs>